Well, um, since I'm preaching, it's a double cup kind of Sunday, so um, I, I feel like my, my, my beard actually senses when I'm nervous and is like a puffer fish and grows to twice its normal size as a defense mechanism, but um, <clears throat> there's a lot in this passage, and I, I also love that during Bible study this week, Andy was the one to speak up and go, they're probably drunk by 9 o'clock in the morning, so thank you for that, Andy. Appreciate your revelations as always. Um, let's take a moment to pray because we're going to walk through some stuff that's, uh, that's challenging, both uh, you know, for myself and, and I think for, for uh, some of all of us. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, as it says in the Scriptures, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O God. I pray that this time would be fruitful, constructive, and redemptive. And we trust that through the working of your Holy Spirit that we will all walk away with something and that as you work, we will all walk away changed. In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, I'll get you to move to the next slide. So the biggest lie of the technological age is the following. Next slide. I have read and agree to the store terms and conditions with the emphasis on I have read. Let's move to the next slide. Here's the thing, is we've all done this as we update our phones, our computers, and at this point, it's, it's likely that Apple or Google has power of attorney over me and probably has the right to slot my brain into a Tesla, you know, in a couple of years. But that's why every once in a while on Facebook you see a uh, post go around that, oh, the Facebook has updated their privacy settings and now owns your kidneys. So, now the reason I bring up fine print is fine print can trip us up and get us into all kinds of trouble if we don't read it. Now, as someone who's uh, done a fair amount of their academic work in the fields of uh, mixed fields of sociology and Christian spirituality, I'm continually frustrated at the church's inability to think about systems and structures of oppression uh, in our Western context. Now, some of you may have heard the term structural racism or structural sexism or systemic homophobia, and the thing is it's tough to talk about these things in a culture where we are taught to worship at the altar of rugged individualism. So we don't always have a good grasp on the way that implicit bias in our society and in ourselves work out collectively. So as I was thinking about this and working on this, I think fine print is probably the best analogy and metaphor that I could come up with this because even if we don't read the fine print, it still affects us. It still affects us when we go to the DMV. It affects us when we try to insure our vehicles. It affects us when we deal with our life insurance, with lawyers, with technology. So we, when we don't read it, it can come back and bite us. Now, in terms of our own fine print, our own fine print is given to us uh, through our social interactions, through the media, through where we grew up, our parents, what kind of church we went to, all of those things. So I want to begin by sharing my own journey with how um, I was able to engage with my fine print 
and come to a place, a redemptive place with it. Uh, I grew up in Whitehorse, Yukon. Uh, has anybody else ever been there? Who's been to Whitehorse? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. Uh, it's beautiful in, uh, in the summer. The sun is up all day and all night, so it can get a little uncomfortable. But when it comes to fine print, um, I grew up um, in, a, in a town surrounded by indigenous nations. Um, there was a strong segregation between um, the white folks who lived in Whitehorse and the indigenous people who lived in the surrounding area. Um, now, I grew up in a time where we weren't taught about residential schools. We didn't engage with Canada's history at all on, on those issues. And it also didn't help that most of the people that I was surrounded with were, and, I, and I, please don't take this pejoratively, were right-wing white conservatives who used phrases like, well, these people are takers. Well, they're all on welfare. Well, they don't work for anything. They don't deserve for anything. Oh, well, they get to go to school for free. Well, obviously, they're just, they just don't earn their way. That and continually pointing out the stereotypes of, you know, the indigenous drunk, the indigenous lazy person. The subtext underneath, these people are all on welfare, or these people are takers, is the stereotypes of laziness, the stereotypes of these people are less than. And I internalized that fine print. The other fine print that I grew up in, um, I grew up with a lot of focus on the family paraphernalia around the house. And I remember being 12 years old and my dad handing me a book called The War on the Family. The book was a detailed... The thesis of the book was you know, essentially the gay agenda is wrecking families. And it went into strong detail about all of this in trying to paint the LGBTQ community as um, degenerate, as disease-ridden, as all sorts of other things. And again, what a thing to hand to a 12-year-old. But I internalized that fine print. It was only uh, when I'm, well, when I met Jesus, or maybe more specifically, when uh, Jesus decided that he had an agenda with me, that I began to take apart that fine print and start to learn more about it. I am eternally grateful for the that I've had many wonderful professors who've helped me kind of deconstruct those things. As well as, uh, we talked a couple of weeks back about the death of James Cone, the founding father of black liberation theology. In reading his work, uh, in reading indigenous perspectives like Mark Charles, who I'm going to talk about a little bit later, and uh, Matthew Vines, the author of God and the Gay Christian. And really just as someone who's worked in the entertainment business most of their life, uh, having interacted with um, the LGBTQ community there, those things started to fall away. And through the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I got to a place where I'm brilliantly happy to be working in an affirming church. But it took a lot of repentance, a lot of hard work, a lot of facing myself in the mirror to put those things to bed. 
And even now, I still try and be vigilant in my prayer life and in my study to make sure that I don't re-internalize those things. I want to talk a little bit about where I've run into the fine print in my life. In 2005, I was attending a conservative Bible college in Alberta, which I won't name because I feel like there's no redemptive purpose in, in that. You always want to hold space for people to change and evolve and grow because we've all been in places where we need to change and grow. As I was beginning to study and become uncomfortable with the way that Jesus was being attached to state-sponsored violence, to you know police shooting unarmed African-Americans, with those things... Um, I think the first time when you learn something for the first time, you become sort of an evangelist. Like, hey, I learned this. Everybody should know this now. And uh, unfortunately, I think in my evangelism of those things, I was a bit of an abrasive human being, which, you know, I figured that out now. But I was recording uh, my first album that I ever released into the Christian music market and started dealing with those things, talking about... Um, right-wing conservative evangelicals in the United States and their blanket approval of war and having challenges with that and dealing with those issues, talking about poverty, talking about televangelism and giant churches and in an age of poverty. I, I ran into the fine print of the evangelical subculture hard. I remember playing a show in Medicine Hat and talking about evangelicals in the war in Iraq and having half of the crowd walk out. This was the first time, too, that I encountered Christian hate mail, which is super fun, by the way, super fun. Um, I was called a blasphemer. I was told that I hate the church. Uh, my personal favorite is wolf in sheep's clothing, which is why I have the beard. So, But... After two years in the Christian market, I walked away and didn't go back uh, because it was so hurtful. The other thing in terms of fine print that I and actually my family um, run into, um, most of you know that uh, my youngest son uh, has autism. The fine print in our society goes a little something like this. You're judged on what you can contribute to society, mostly economically. There's a good chance that my son will never grow up to be a taxpayer. The subtext under that word is that if you can't contribute in that way, if you aren't a taxpayer, that you are less than that your personhood is not valuable. And the way that works itself out is lack of funding for educational programs, lack of funding for therapy, people who don't want to make space, and churches who believe that if they have a room in the back where they can put the disabled people, that they are living out the inclusive love of God. I know some of that is difficult to hear, but 
I, I want to be real with you and vulnerable with you in saying that it's far more difficult to live it than to hear it. So, what does this mean for us as we move from my story to our story? And before I go on, I want to take a moment to encourage all of you regarding the work that you are already doing. With the changes in language, the fact that this church voted to become an affirming church without the whole thing exploding, is mar- I marvel at that. I marvel at your hearts, and I'm so touched and blessed and honored to be a part of this community. Just know that. And know that everything that I say this morning is heavily weighted towards love for you and love for this community. Now, as I mentioned, much of my academic work has been in the fields of sociology and Christian spirituality. My uh, undergrad thesis was uh, discussing the intersection of critical race theory and popular worship music. So what I did was I evaluated seven years of top ten Christian worship uh, songs as charting on Billboard. Um, As a side note, after listening to hours of Christian music that sounds sort of exactly the same, I may have wanted to bang my head on a desk. But that is beside the point, and I I digress. Here's the thing that I found. I found that there were no people of color represented um, in the songwriters or the artists at all. And critical race theory essentially means that race matters. These things matter. The source matters. Uh, The Barna Group, which is one of the leading researchers about church, Uh, in North America, uh, released a study a few years ago that found that white evangelicals are among the people to care least about racial justice. They don't seem to see a problem and thought that, in fact, that reverse racism, which really isn't a thing, is a thing. Um... Now, I realize right now I'm engaging in one of the mainline sacraments. There are two that I've observed mostly. Uh, one is soup, um, which we have at every, <laughs> at every single church gathering, which I love. Soup is great. It's good for all of us, healthy, part of a complete breakfast. Um, and the other mainline sacrament is rolling our eyes at evangelicals. Uh, that seems to see something that we do a lot. But... I want to caution us, and I do say this to myself more than anybody else, to not be like the Pharisee who prays, Lord, at least I'm not like this guy. So, what does that mean for us? What we do communicates just as much as what we say. The great Franciscan thinker Richard Rohr, who's my homeboy, love Richard Rohr, says that we live into new belief. And in the main line, in many ways we suffer the same problems as our evangelical and charismatic brothers and sisters. 
We place a great deal of value on our liturgical uh, traditions, and I am a big fan of the capital T tradition. As we were singing this morning, you'll notice that I talked about, as we sing, we connect with ancient traditions of chant and ancient traditions. Those things are important and necessary. However, as we seek to translate our affirming and inclusive values into action, we have to face the fact that our liturgical material, our songs, our readings, are almost exclusively written by straight white men. Not that there's anything wrong with straight white men being one. Um, it's sort of okay. Um, but our sourcing matters as much as what we say. And this is why me and the rest of your leadership team, this is why we spend so much time and effort trying to look for and introduce liturgical material from people of color, from the LGBTQ people, women, and the indigenous community. I just don't want our affirming words to be undercut by our fine print. Because if all of our liturgical material comes from white men or white people, the subtext there, the fine print is, you are welcomed, wanted, accepted to come and be white like us. If we have nothing from the LGBTQ community, our fine print is, you are welcomed, wanted, and accepted to be straight like us. I know that's challenging to hear, church. And again, I want to reference you to the work that you are already doing. And I feel so much that you are on our way. We are on our way. But fine print matters. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Daniel J. Camacho, a Latino uh, PhD student at Duke University. And he's done some excellent work with sociology talking about how multicultural spaces in church if all of the thinkers that are referenced, all the theologians are white men, if all the music and material is white, then those places serve to reinforce racism rather than take it apart. And the thing is, when our defensiveness at change causes us to lash out and denigrate artistic and liturgical expressions from different ethnic and racial groups as inappropriate to our context, whatever our intention, the message, the fine print, is not, this genre is not welcome. The message to that group is, you are not welcome. I had a really illuminating conversation with a friend of mine. We've known, our, we've known each other for 10 years. Played, we've played together a ton. She comes from indigenous heritage, and she grew up, again, same era as me, going through the entirety of school in white spaces. And it was only until her mid-20s that she was able to start finding out about her own identity and her own heritage. We need to not be one of those places, church. And I think we, there's so much possibility here. So what does this have to do with Pentecost? Seems kind of like a long setup, but 
I really want you to note something about the passage. When Nick was reading, I mean, all the fun-sounding, you know, hard-to-pronounce, you know, Greek places and ancient places, and he did a great job. Come on, let me give it up. He did. That is, that is not easy to walk through that stuff, and that's why I didn't read it. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, I, I have a, a you know I, I sometimes will slip into a Mennonite accent and you know I'll pronounce things gondola so not gondola so I never just want to just didn't want to inflict that on anybody this morning but the author Luke takes the time to name all of the different ethnicities geographic places traditions that are represented and that says something to us about who God is. That God is not a God who is homogenous. God is not a God who is colorblind. Our God is not reductionist. We have a God that celebrates difference. Not goes, oh, well, we're all one in the Spirit, so let's all act and look the same. It's a God who goes, look at all of these beautiful diversity of people that I have made. Look at these beautiful gay and transgender people that I have made. Look at these wonderful black and brown people that I have made. Look at these indigenous people and their love for the the land, my spirit, creation. Look what I have made. And when we enter into God's character like that, we are all enriched. We are all blessed. And as we encounter the Holy Spirit together, as God pours out His Spirit on all of us, we enter into the fierce joy of God over the diversity of His created peoples. So where does this leave us? First of all, we have a God who is faithful to empower us to heal our collective brokenness and continually renew our minds. We have a Holy Spirit who offers us every opportunity through prayer, through reading, through spiritual practice to face ourselves and not despair, but face ourselves with redemption in mind. I've also seen how God is moving in this congregation. The fact, again, that you became an officially affirming community without this whole thing blowing up, is evidence that the Spirit is powerfully at work here in all of these individuals, in all of us gathered here. I read story after story, both in my academic work and just out of curiosity, of churches who've walked this road and have completely fallen apart. And the fact that we are moving in this with the diversity of opinions and the diversity of peoples represented here is a sign from God that things are good. We also have the example of the self-emptying and self-sacrificial love of Jesus. As Christians, we claim as the highest and most complete revelation of God is the self-sacrificial love of Christ. We have a model to follow in order to put down our defenses and put down our preferences and serve each other and the wider community, we have a wonderful example to follow. 
As the great Muhammad Ali once said, service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. And through Christ, we are empowered to run with that, guys and gals and folks. We have each other. We can care and encourage. We can care for and encourage each other as we seek to face our fine print. None of us need to walk through this stuff alone. I'm, I'm very grateful that my sister-in-law has now decided, found me to be a place where she can ask me questions. Uh, we recently had a conversation about blackface and why that is so deeply inappropriate and offensive. But I'm grateful that she feels that I'm a safe place where she can ask questions and continue to grow and evolve. We are on the road, people. We really are. But it's up to us to have the courage to read the fine print, to be able to face it, to be able to walk with it, and also become agents and people who walk into the wider society and begin to undo it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at your heart for us. Creator, we marvel at your generosity in giving us the Holy Spirit. And as we seek to be better human beings to each other and to the wider world around us, we pray that in the generosity of your Spirit, provide us with opportunities to seek the humanity and divinity in the people around us, knowing that every person is made in the image of God. Lord, help us see that. Help us to walk forward in grace and love for each other. And Lord, most of all, thank you for your church. Jesus, you are at work here. Holy Spirit, you are at work here. Thank you that we get to be part of your redemption story. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.